Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to me be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust in all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. God, we pray that this morning as... We look into your word, Lord, that as you take us back to the beginning, Lord, we would just become more deeply, more closely uh, knowledgeable and drawn to the hope that you uh, want to give us this Christmas season through your son. Lord, just, uh, Lord, make and mold our hearts uh, to be receptive to your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's begin with a question, and that question is this, why do you need Christmas? Perhaps you've never thought of Christmas in that way before, but why do you need Christmas? Some people might say it's because they need a, a break from work, maybe they need a break from school, maybe they need that year-end Christmas bonus, or they just like getting presents and eating Christmas goodies and all the, the holiday cheer that comes with it. Uh, maybe you're on the opposite side of the spectrum and you don't think you need Christmas at all. In fact, you don't really like the stress that comes from all the decorating, the shopping, the awkward family gatherings and the traveling. Or maybe Christmas just makes you feel lonely and you don't even want to be a part of it. You wish the season would just kind of get here and go by fast and be done with it. Uh, but why do you need Christmas? What both of these mindsets have in common is that they each focus on things that are somewhat secondary to the true reason of why we need Christmas, even the true reason of why we celebrate Christmas. After the murder of 14 people in a terrorist attack in San Bernardino, California on December 2nd, 2015, the New York Daily News ran the following headline across the front page of their paper. God isn't fixing this. But Christmas 
is a vivid reminder that God is fixing this. And one day, all the evil in this world will be eradicated and all things will be made right. Why do you need Christmas? The reason we need Christmas goes all the way back to when it was first announced in Genesis chapter 3. This is where we find the beginning of Christmas. Notice this in your notes there, coming up on the screen. You're welcome to follow along in the insert in your bulletin there. But the hope of Jesus is first revealed by God in the Garden of Eden. It's first revealed by God in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden may seem like a strange place to find the beginning of Christmas. <coughs> and yet, Genesis 3.15 is one of the greatest verses, greatest Christmas verses throughout all the Bible when God tells the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now it's true, there's no jingle bells ringing in this verse. But the promise of a Savior is ringing loud and clear in this verse. In fact, it's interesting, this verse is, first, is known as the very first gospel because it's the first announcement of the good news of the gospel in all the Bible. Do you remember what the angel said to the shepherds that first Christmas night? Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 tells us, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And you see, what the angel said goes all the way back to what God said here in Genesis 3. Everything else in the Bible flows from these words right here that God told the serpent. The great English preacher Charles Simeon called this verse, speaking of Genesis 3.15, the sum in summary of the whole Bible. And so let's go back this morning, not to the city of David, but to the Garden of Eden to find the beginning of Christmas. John Farrar has written a Christmas devotional for families entitled, Looking Forward to the Nativity. And the very first chapter of this little book is called The Seed of the Christmas Story. Listen to the simple but powerful words Farrar writes. It was the beginning of all time, the start of human history. There was a garden called Eden. Within that garden, God planted the seed of the Christmas story. As Adam and Eve walked around the Garden of Eden, God told them that they could eat any of its fruit, except the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But one day, history was forever changed. Adam and Eve ate some fruit from the tree God had told them not to eat from. The devil, in the form of a servant, had tempted them to demand their own way. Because Adam and Eve disobeyed God, he threw them out of the garden. And although God was angry, he promised that someday a Savior, one of Adam and Eve's own seed or offspring, would come to overthrow all evil and the devil as represented by the serpent in this story. Adam and Eve looked forward to that day. That day, of course, is Christmas, the birthday of Jesus, Eve's seed in our 
Savior. So what do we learn from all this? And why does it even matter to us? Why should it matter to us? What difference does it make? Well, Christmas in the Garden shows us, reveals to us, three truths that impact our lives even today and for all eternity. And the very first truth we see is there's a conflict behind the narrative of Christmas. There's a conflict behind the narrative. Now, there's nothing holly jolly about the context of this verse here in Genesis 3.15. Though it contains the good news about Jesus' birth, folks, make no mistake about it, it is surrounded by the bad news of Adam and Eve's sin. The Christmas story is not all candies and carols here. The narrative, the story behind Christmas is an epic battle between good and evil, heaven and hell, God and the devil. In fact, Russell Moore refers to Mary's song in Luke chapter 1 as the very first Christmas carol, and he calls it a war hymn. Mary sang, in other words, about a war that began long before Jesus was miraculously conceived in her womb. In Genesis 3.15, we find a word for that war. It's called enmity. God said to Satan in the form of the certain, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now that word, it speaks of animosity hostility and strife. It's a word for conflict and warfare. And so consider the conflict behind the Christmas story here for a moment. The start of this conflict is between the serpent and the woman in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 begins with a description of the serpent as the most crafty creature in the garden, and it closes with him being cursed as the sworn enemy of mankind. In between, though, we read the story of how Satan deceived and tempted Eve to disobey God and thereby initiated the fall of mankind. And so what we have here is from a state of perfect fellowship with God, Adam and Eve fell into the curse of sin and death. And so suddenly, paradise was not so beautiful anymore. The Garden of Eden has been ruined by the entrance of sin. Dark shadows fall on the ground as Adam and Eve contemplate what they have done. The smell of death is now in the air. The serpent lies quietly under the tree. He alone is happy. He laughs at what is happening, for this was his plan from the very beginning. He intended, he wanted, he desired to humiliate God by ruining paradise, and now he has done it. As God surveys the moral wreckage of the fall, he immediately begins to pass out judgment, to pass down judgment. God begins where sin begins, with the serpent. He will deal with Adam and Eve later, but he speaks to the serpent first in Genesis 3, verse 14, where he says, because you, serpent, you have done this. You are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And then God lays it down in verse 15, and I will put 
enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the bad news for the serpent here is that there's no good news for him. Even though verse 15 contains the first mention of the gospel, there is no ray of hope for Satan because he is now forever excluded from God's plan of salvation. As Charles Spurgeon puts it, now God comes in, takes up quarrel personally, and causes him, the serpent, to be disgraced on the very battlefield upon which he had gained a temporary success. And so right here, in the very beginning, Genesis 3, Christmas reminds us that God did not leave us to the doom of the enemy who captured us. God set in motion a conflict that first began between the serpent and Eve, which means Eve and the serpent will never get along. Listen, if Satan thought for a moment that by deceiving Eve, he had her in his back pocket, he was only fooling himself. He was wrong. Yes, Eve made a huge mistake along with Adam, but she would never join the serpent's fan club. Every woman dreams of living in paradise, and now that Eve has been cast out of the garden, every day is a reminder to hate the serpent fiercely. But this conflict between the serpent and Eve is just the start of a greater conflict that still affects us even today. Which brings us to a second point here. Notice the story of this conflict continues. And it continues between what has been referred to as two humanities. In fact, Pastor Chris referred to this even in the New Life class this morning. Between the descendants of Satan and the descendants of the woman. Notice again what God says to the serpent in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now this conflict, what God is saying here, is that it would extend between just the serpent and Eve. It would extend to the separate lines of their descendants. It's here we find the beginning of a storyline that fleshes itself out through the pages of the Bible and, in fact, all of world history. One line of people will follow after the rebellion of Satan, rejecting God, resisting his will. But there will also be another line of people who, by God's grace, will know God and will follow him and serve him and love him. Charles Spurgeon, again, put it this way. Satan counted on man's descendants being his confederates. But God would break up this covenant with hell and raise up a seed which should war against the satanic power. Now, these two rival seeds or rival descendants or lines of humanity would battle from the very beginning. And you see the result of this first conflict in the blood of Abel shed by the hands of his wicked brother Cain. In fact, you see it in the very next chapter, right after what we are told here in Genesis 3. You see the difference between the descendants of man like Nimrod 
who built cities and kingdoms for his own name and his own glory. And a man like Enoch who simply walked humbly with God in all the way into heaven. You see the tensions between these two lines and brothers like Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob. This conflict raged when Pharaoh ordered all the Hebrew babies thrown into the Nile River. When Haman plotted to kill all the Jews and when King Herod had all the baby boys in Bethlehem slaughtered. And it all goes back to this. Beginning here in Genesis 3.15, there is now a fundamental division in the human race. You have the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and they have opposed each other continuously across the centuries. And so when Jesus was finally born, in the, was in the wake of a conflict that had raged for thousands of years. And so no wonder when this ultimate seed of the woman, Jesus, was born in Bethlehem, the angel sang, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Now with that in mind, Christmas in the garden also shows us a second truth, that there's a Savior born the night of Christmas. There's a Savior born the night of Christmas. Despite the darkness that covered that day in the garden, one beam of light shone through. A Savior was born. The announcement to the shepherds was this in Luke 2, verses 10 through 12. The, shepherds, the angel tells the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The birth of this Savior was promised, though, by God in the garden long before it was proclaimed by the angels in Judea. Again, God declared to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, and I will put. Now stop right there and think about that for a moment. God is the one who's doing this. God is the one passing out the judgment. God is the one who is declaring, and he is the one who's putting this conflict in play. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now, the word seed here is exactly what you think it is. It refers to a seed you sow in the ground. But in this context, it actually refers to someone's children and offspring. Yet notice that God spoke of Eve's seed. In fact, he says her seed. Now, that's rather strange. In fact, it's a very strange way to describe a family line. Even today, we usually trace one's lineage through the father and not the mother. It is certainly true in the Bible that families descend from the, quote, seed of the father. God's people are the seed of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not the wives. Yet here in Genesis 3, we have the seed of the woman that is mentioned. We might scratch our heads at this. 
unless we remember that Jesus was born to a virgin mother. And so even here in the garden, we have indication of the miraculous nature of the Savior's birth. Notice this in your notes. Jesus is the seed of the woman born to a virgin mother named Mary. Now, even today, people scoff at this notion. They scoff at the idea of a virgin birth. In fact, they often think they know too much biology to believe that kind of theology. They don't mind a cute baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger, but they balk at the idea that this baby was virgin born. And yet the same God who promised this miraculous birth is the one who performed this miraculous birth. Even Mary, it's interesting, even she thought that this was impossible when she asked the angel Gabriel in Luke 1.34, how can this be? Since I don't know a man, I'm still a virgin. How can I give birth to a child? But Gabriel answered in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And then Gabriel declares to her in verse 37, for with God nothing will be what? Impossible. But why a virgin-born Savior? Why the seed of a woman? Why not the seed of a man? Well, it's because sin comes through the seed of man. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22, he says, For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In other words, Adam was ultimately held responsible for sin entering into this world. He is the one who would bear the brunt of the burden and responsibility for a fallen, ruined race. And this is why now, the solution to the problem of sin couldn't come through the seed of a man. It would have to come through the seed of the woman. In fact, alluding to this very verse here in Genesis 3, Warren Wiersbe says, to God's old covenant people, this verse was a beacon of hope. To Satan, it was God's declaration of war climaxing in his condemnation. And to Eve, it was the assurance she was forgiven and that God would use a woman to bring the Redeemer into the world. That leads us to the third truth. Christmas in the garden shows us that there's a hope beyond the nativity of Christmas. There's a hope here that goes way beyond the nativity of Christmas. Satan started it in the garden, but here's the hope. Jesus will finish it on the cross. In an article called The Babe Who Will Not Be Tamed, Al Mohler writes, Christmas affords the church an unusual opportunity to tell the world the true identity of the infant in Bethlehem. 
the divine babe of the manger, is the one who would die on a cross and was raised on the third day. Christmas is inseparable from Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And so all the way back in the Garden of Eden, God looked forward in time not only to Bethlehem, but to the cross. Which means, if all we see is the nativity of Christmas, then we miss the real hope that Jesus brings. We miss the real hope of what God promised in the garden. Look at what God told the serpent in the last part of verse 15. He, speaking of Christ, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now in this one sentence, we have the hope of Jesus wrapped in the gospel. The hope of Jesus is twofold here. Notice it. Satan bruised the heel of Jesus on the cross. This is true. This is the suffering of Jesus. God told Satan, you shall bruise his heel. But if you've ever had a bruised heel, or perhaps you've had a heel spur, then you know how painful that can be. It can be very, very painful. In fact, you may even end up on crutches because of it. You may be taking pain killers. You may even have surgery as a result of it all. A bruised heel is painful. Slows you down, but it won't kill you. Yes, when Christ died on the cross, Satan bruised the heel of Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus was wounded by the bite of the serpent. The nails were pounded in his hands and in his feet, right through his heels. And when they took Jesus' body down from the cross, it appeared that Satan had won the battle. No doubt he must have thought he had actually thrown a knockout punch. But Satan was wrong. All he did was strike Jesus on the heel. As painful as it was, that suffering was nothing to what Jesus did to Satan. And what was that? Notice this. Jesus bruised the head of Satan on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he delivered a bruising and crushing blow to Satan's head. The cross was God's death blow against Satan. It was the payback for the fall in the Garden of Eden. And when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, the veil was torn in two. The blood of the Lamb was offered as an atonement for our sins. And the very curse Satan lowered on us in the Garden was lifted from us on the cross. John Piper puts it this way. In dying, Christ defamed the devil. I love that. He goes on and he writes, how? By covering all our sin. This means that Satan has no legitimate grounds to accuse us before God. Satan's ultimate weapon against us is our own sin. If the death of Jesus takes it away, the chief weapon of the devil is taken out of his hand. He cannot make a case for, for our death penalty because the judge has acquitted us by the death of his son. That means Jesus was born on purpose for a purpose. And that purpose was to crush or to bruise the head of Satan. 
On the cross, Jesus destroyed sin, death, and Satan. In fact, speaking of Jesus, listen to notice it. I think this is in your notes. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, speaking of Christ, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. One author and pastor writes, At Calvary, Christ as the seed destroyed Satan's power and authority and brought us back from sin, slavery, captivity, and death. And that's exactly what John tells us in 1 John 3, 8. When he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared. In other words, the reason we have Christmas was to destroy the works of the devil. But this raises a question. If you'll excuse me for a drink of water. And the question is this, if Satan has been destroyed, then why does he still seem to be doing so well 2,000 years later? We know that Satan is indeed alive and well here on earth. So how can a defeated foe who was crushed by Christ exercise so much power? Well, the answer is that on the cross, Satan was judged and his sentence was pronounced. However, Satan is now free to roam the earth while awaiting his final execution when Jesus returns as judge. But make no mistake, in the end, when it is all said and done, Satan will be destroyed and Jesus wins. The Bible tells us repeatedly that Jesus, the mighty warrior, is always victorious. John tells us in Revelation 19, verses 11 and 16, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so get ready, folks. Someday, the clouds will break open and he, we will see Jesus on a white horse. His powerful appearance will be breathtaking. In fact, it will be terrifying. And with simply a word, a word he will instantly set the world in order. In the end, Jesus wins. Now, what Satan failed to see in the garden is that his only power comes from God. Satan knows that God is holy. He knows that God must punish sin. But he wrongly assumed that if he could just get our first parents to sin, then the holy wrath of God against sin would come down on them. And therefore, God's good purposes for humanity would be thwarted, stopped. What Satan did not know is how God could be both just in punishing sin and merciful in saving sinners. 
He couldn't reconcile that. Satan failed to understand just how much God loved Adam and Eve. Just how much Jesus had been sent by God to bear sin's punishment. And that his own power, Satan's own power, would be broken in the process. You see, what Satan failed to see in the garden is made so clear to us in God's word. Christmas. It's not so much about trees and gifts and angels and shepherds and stars and wise men, though some of those things are part of the Christmas story. Christmas is ultimately about a Savior, promised to us by God, promised by God to our first parents thousands of years ago in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had sinned and would have perished in their sins. But God said that he was going to send his own son to save them from their sins. And you know what? God did. I love how Paul phrases it. Paul says it this way in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law. Why? to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. This is why we need Christmas. Christmas doesn't exist because we need more presents and stockings and more Christmas goodies to eat and Christmas food and all that. Christmas exists because we need a Savior. So I ask you this morning, are you a sinner? Then you need Christmas. You need Jesus to save you from your sins. Jesus came to die in our place to save us from our sins. And he offers each of us a gift, a gift that was promised way back in Genesis 3, verse 15. Instead of the headline, God isn't fixing this. We can say with confidence that God has fixed this by sending his son to save us from our sins. And in the midst of the curse and the consequences, God has provided a solution of, for sin and it can be fixed even in your life. When you turn to Jesus in repentance and faith and you trust him, as your Savior. Let's bow our heads. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, He provided a way for you to experience forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it's not automatic. The Bible tells us that we must respond in faith. We must turn to Jesus in faith and ask Him to save us from our sins. So here's a simple prayer to help you express the desire of your heart if that is how God is leading you this morning. Dear God, I know that I am a sinner and I confess that I have broken your law and that my sins have separated me from you. I believe that Jesus is your only son who died on the cross for me and rose again from the dead with all my heart and soul. I am trusting Jesus alone for my salvation and to be my Savior.
Please forgive me and save me. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, if you have yet to trust Jesus for your salvation, then I want to encourage you to use this time to respond in prayer, asking God to save you. And if you're already a believer in Christ, then use this time to prepare your heart to participate in communion. The music's going to play here. And for the next few minutes, just go to the Lord in prayer. Cry out to Him as He leads you. Communion, what is often referred to as the Lord's Supper, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful reminder that Jesus really is the reason for the season. The greatest gift in all the world is to know for sure that Jesus is your Savior, and you are saved from your sins. And this gift is possible all because Jesus came to die in your place and cover your sins, and then rose from the dead to give you new life. To put it another way, Jesus was bruised and broken for you on the cross. Listen to the prophet Isaiah, how he describes it in Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He, speaking of Jesus, is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities just as God promised in the garden. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his land. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That is what our Lord has done for us. That is the provision we have as a gift from God the Father. 
in our son Jesus. And communion, the Lord's Supper, is a reminder of that. And so when we come here to the table and we take hold of the elements, the bread and the juice, this is what we remember. So give thanks. Listen, if you are a Christ follower here this morning, you have every reason in the world to celebrate Christmas and to participate in communion. And so as followers of Christ, those who have trusted Christ for salvation, and you identify Christ in baptism, you're invited to participate this morning. And the communion here is located at the front of the auditorium, and we're going to do something just a little bit different than we normally do. As you know, normally we have four tables throughout. But we're going to all come and pass by this way, take the bread and the juice, take it back to your seats. And so here's how we're going to do this so it's not chaotic, is everyone needs to go down this aisle, and then you're going to come up this aisle and pass by. So if you're, if you're going to get out of your pews and seats on this side, walk to the back of the auditorium. Those of you over here, as you get out, you just come forward and come by, and obviously come by in single file, and, um, and then exit this way and around to your seats. You can come at your pleasure, at your convenience. You don't all have to come at once. And of course, uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to, uh, to watch, see what happens, see what we as Christ followers participate in. It's a testimony to our beliefs of what Christ has done for us. And we hope by you watching that you, God opens your heart to where you're like, man, I want that. I want the sacrifice of Jesus to cover my sins. I want to trust him for my Savior. The music's going to play, the instrumentalists here, and as they do, you're welcome to come at your convenience and, and partake of the Lord's Supper.